Amen. Well, Merry Christmas. Debated earlier this morning, what do you say the Sunday after Thanksgiving? You say Happy Christmas? Does that bridge the gap between Happy Thanksgiving, Merry Christmas? I don't know. We'll, we'll, uh, both are acceptable this morning. This, uh, the fall, I don't know about you, but one of my favorite activities um, in the fall around here is hiking. Like Kennesaw Mountain, love running over there, love hiking over there. there is, if there is one activity that is guaranteed to get a collective groan at my house, it is, hey, let's go on a hike. Right? Anybody else? Um, yes. Love it. Kids don't love it. Um, but one of the things I love about hikes is looking at the trees. Right? In the fall, you look at the trees, you look at the leaves. Right? And a lot of times you look at the trees, you look at the size, you look at how big it is, or maybe how the trunk is growing and the branches are weaving and winding. Rarely do we look at a tree and we go, man, look at the roots of that sucker. Unless the tree falls down. Right? When the tree falls down, if a tree blows down in a storm and it uproots itself, inevitably the root, the root base can sometimes be taller than we are. The hole left by the roots can be bigger than we are, enough for us to hide in it or lay down in it. The roots are massive. Now, we all know that the roots are there, but the roots are unseen. The roots are below the surface. The roots are just a given for anything that's growing. Now, where do roots come from? They come from seeds, right? You plant a seed, it's, we just know that roots go down at the same time that growth is going up. So while you see something um, come through the surface of the ground, you understand that in order for that to happen, there has to be something below it. Well, the next couple weeks as we journey through Advent, as Troy set us up this, this morning, lighting the hope candle, our Advent study is simply going to be called Roots as we look at the family story of Jesus, recognizing that as we look, much like a tree, and maybe you don't pay attention to the roots, as you look at the manger, as you look at the baby Jesus, below Jesus is a story that has been written from the beginning of time that led to that moment. And that what I want us to see this morning, especially, and over the next couple of weeks, is I think we will be incredibly encouraged to remember that God didn't just all of a sudden wake up one day and go, wait a second, let's do, let's send Jesus. Because Jesus didn't just happen. He didn't just snap his fingers and send Jesus. Jesus came as a continuation of a story that had been written. And for us today, an encouraging part is a story that he continues to write that you and I are a part of. You see, Advent is this idea of arrival. It's something is coming. And many of you probably have Advent calendars throughout your house, maybe some decorations. Um, that offers a handy countdown to Christmas, right? At a quick glance, you know how many days you are. If you have younger kids, you don't even need that calendar because they will let you know how many days there are till Christmas. But Advent is so much more. Advent is an opportunity for us to take a deep breath and step into these next four weeks. And yes, it is four weeks. Four weeks from today is Christmas Day. And not get to Christmas and say what many of us have said many years in the past. Man, Christmas snuck up on me this year. You ever been there? And what we mean by that is not that all of a sudden it got to the 25th of December. What we realize is in the leading up to the 25th of December, life got chaotic. There was so much to do. There were so many traditions. There was so much fun stuff. There were so many things to gather. There were presents to buy. There were things to prepare. And all of a sudden we get to Christmas and we go, man, did I forget to use this season to prepare myself for something more than just a day? You see, Christmas is designed or Advent is designed to put us into a posture of anticipation. And the church calendar, historical church calendar, really is broken into two parts, right? It's broken into the top line is Christmas. 
You got Advent, which is anticipation. You got Christmas, which is a celebration of what we anticipated has actually come. And then you got Epiphany. Epiphany is celebrated historically on the 6th of January. It's representative of when the wise men came and proclaimed who Jesus was and his identity. Then you flip over to Easter and you start with Lent, which is a season of anticipation, Easter, which is celebration, and Pentecost, which is a season of proclamation. So why is Advent important? It's a four weeks we step in beginning today is a season of anticipating, of reminding what we're waiting for. Because we're not just waiting for Christmas Day. Waiting for Christmas Day reminds us of Jesus coming and it also points to the fact that he's coming again. So over this next series, uh, next few weeks, we're going to be in this series called Roots. We're going to be looking at the family history of Jesus going, hey, Jesus didn't just appear. He came from a people. He came from a place. He came from a history that he was a part of. We want to under, better understand that to better celebrate his arrival. And part of one of the ways we're going to do that, we've got some books in the lobby and the tables in the corners. We encourage you to grab one on your way out. It's just a simple read once a day, beginning December 1st, leading us through Christmas. If you don't grab a book, it's also going to be on our app. But we just invite our faith family to journey in this together. We see trees and people both have roots. It's an invisible part that maybe you don't know the story of a person, never talked with a person, and then as you got to know them, you were like, got to know a little bit more of their history, a little bit more of their roots, and it gave you a greater appreciation, a greater understanding of who they are today and why they do what they do or why they don't do what they do. Trees and roots, both or people both have roots, and so did Jesus. So remembering the roots of Jesus, I believe, is going to give us hope for today. Our time this morning, if you have your Bibles, flip over to Isaiah chapter 11. Isaiah chapter 11, we're going to start in one verse. And one verse is where we're going to kind of stay anchored or rooted, as you could say, um, for our time together this morning. Isaiah writes these words in chapter 11, verse 1. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. There shall come forth a a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. Now, just up front, the first line, I want to point out four aspects that will kind of help us understand what this is meaning and what we need to understand better to fully understand what Isaiah is, is writing. It says, there shall come forth. Something will come forth, meaning we get to the end, there is a stump which appears dead, but life is going to come forth. Something will come forth out of what seemed dead. What will come forth? A shoot will come forth from what? A stump. And the stump represents what? Jesse. Four components outlined in the first line of this verse give us context for understanding what Isaiah is writing about. You see, Isaiah's prophetic career began in about 742 B.C., spanning until about 701 B.C. And he didn't exactly have the best news to share. You see, things were not going well for the Israelite people. And God sent Isaiah to warn them that, hey, things are not going well. And guess what? Things are going to get worse. And what Isaiah prophesied, what he foretold, came to pass. Because we know about 100 years after Isaiah dies, the Babylonian captivity happens. The people are conquered. A lot of them are taken away, where we get the stories of Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, Daniel, and the lion's den. It's because they've been taken into captivity. It's because a lot of what Isaiah prophesies about came to pass. We know that what we see here is that Isaiah doesn't simply say it's going to get from, go from bad to worse. That would be depressing. 
The reason Isaiah holds hope for us today is he tells us it's going to go from bad to worse to better. Better. He's pointing to something. He's pointing to a continuation. And what I love about Isaiah is again and again, he's pulling the thread through. He's pulling the narrative through and saying, hey, what God has been doing, God will continue to do. And even though massive devastation is going to come, God will not stop writing his story. Now, when I thought about this verse and this idea of a stump, I immediately thought of like a clean cut stump, like saying chainsaw, cut off the, the tree, the stump is there. And out of that stump comes a little root, comes a shoot, comes, a, comes something of life. But what I realized is I don't know if that's what Isaiah was talking about or not. Because in those days, they didn't have chainsaws. So you wouldn't have exactly come through and torn down a forest. The forest represents this power. This Assyrian kingdom represents the kingdom of Israel. It wasn't just that it was cut down. It very well may have, could have been burned down because fire would have destroyed much more effectively than people coming through with saws and axes. So when Isaiah says a shoe will come up from the stump of Jesse, I just wonder, rather than this pretty little stump, if the picture in his mind was maybe something more like this. Which when you see this picture, you don't go, man, that looks like a lot of life, right? You look at it and you go, that is hopeless. That is devastation. A couple years ago, we were in California. We were driving through Yosemite and inevitably you come around a bend in Yosemite and it goes from beautiful and green to this, like charred. And you're going, oh my gosh, that's heartbreaking. Like I know what this probably looked like because I know what it looked like back there. But right now it looks like absolute devastation. But what we know is that inevitably over time it will be restored because life will come through this devastation. So as Isaiah here is talking about a stump, he's talking about utter devastation. He's talking about the end of a promise, the end of a kingly line that seemingly has been ended but he's saying from that devastation I will bring hope it is this scene this devastation that God is saying I will bring hope you see the story is of the Bible is one story after another of hope in the midst of hopelessness like just think back for a second Think back to the, the Old Testament. Think back to story after story after story after story. What's the theme? If things are good, people wander and do their own thing, drifting from God, things get bad. God restores and the cycle continues again and again and again and again. Just a few pages into the story of the Bible, hope seems shattered. What God made perfect, man destroyed when sin entered the world. As I was thinking about it this morning, I love the simplicity, remembering the story and there's a book we've had since the kids were little. It's the Jesus Storybook Bible. And I absolutely love the, the way it is written, the heart with which it is written, and the simplicity with which it is written to just remind you that, hey, it's a story we're living. It's not just a Bible story that you keep on a shelf, but it's a story that a loving God has been orchestrating from the beginning of time. And I want to just read to you how it articulates that dark moment, that moment of hopelessness. It says, you will have to leave the garden now, God told his children, his eyes filling with tears. This is no longer your true home. It's not the place for you anymore. But before they left the garden, God made clothes for his children to cover them. He gently clothed them and he sent them away on a long, long journey out of the garden, out of their home. 
Well, in another story, it would be all over. And that would have been the end. But not this story. You see, God loved his children too much to let the story end there. Even though he knew he would suffer, God had a plan, a magnificent dream. One day he would get his children back. One day he would make the world their perfect home again. And one day he'd wipe away every tear from their eyes. You see, no matter what, in spite of everything, God would love his children. Listen to this. With a never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love. With a never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love. And though they would forget him and run from him, deep in their hearts, God's children would miss him always and long for him. Lost children yearning for their home. Before they left the garden, God whispered a promise to Adam and Eve. It will not always be so. I will come to rescue you. And when I do, I'm going to do battle against the snake. I'm going to get rid of sin and the dark and the sadness you let in here. I'm coming back for you. And he would. One day, God himself would come. That's how the story starts. Just a few pages in, it goes from perfect to hopeless. But in the midst of hopelessness, our God has been and will be at work. As I think about this passage, I think about the roots of the story of Jesus. I wanna keep this truth that we've, we learn about our God in front of us a couple times this morning. And the truth is this, that our God doesn't start over when things go bad. Not once in the pages of scripture does God wipe the slates clean, wipe out the universe and move on. Every time things go bad, every time it seems like things are hopeless, what does our God do? He doesn't start over. He doesn't move on. Instead, he redeems and restores. Our God doesn't start over when things go bad. He redeems and restores. And that's not just true of what we find in Scripture. That's what God desires to do in us. That's what God desires to do in our stories. That's what God desires to do in our lives. Think back over your own story. How many times have there been moments of hopelessness, maybe mistakes you have made or maybe things outside of your control, but it looked like all hope was lost. And when you look back, what did God do? He didn't fix it. He didn't change everything. But at the end of the day, we can look and we can see his redemption and his restoration. It's what he does. It's what is central to the story that we see throughout Scripture. You see, when we look at this, this passage in Isaiah chapter 1, or chapter 11, verse 1, we get this, where we get what you may be familiar with. It's the tradition at Christmas time called the Jesse tree. Anybody use a Jesse tree at Christmas time? Like it became popular really a couple years ago, and has, but it isn't new a couple years ago. This is some artwork that I found. The, on the left, that is a Jesse tree showing different lineage and the story of uh, leading to Jesus. But that picture is not new. That's from the 1400s. The one in the middle is from the 1500s. And the one on the right is a wood carving from the 1600s. It's believed that because of this verse and the Jesse tree was oftentimes found in churches, which would show the various stories 
of the Old Testament leading up to Jesus is where the idea of a family tree actually originated years and years and years ago. See, the Jesse tree it was understood that it was important to understand the roots of Jesus, to understand the stories leading to Jesus. And in addition to our, our devotional that I talked about earlier, um, if you have kids or maybe you want to have a kid's devotional for yourself because you like that better than the adult ones, um, Andrea's got some great resources, got like some cards that she's given out to the kids this Christmas that essentially are not an official Jesse Tree devotional, but they, what they do is they walk through the stories of the Old Testament leading us to Jesus. Why? Because it's important for us to understand that Jesus didn't simply appear. Because one of the reasons there is such hope in the story of Christmas is that it reminds us that God has been working the entire time. God has been orchestrating one incredibly beautiful story the whole time. Therefore, Jesus didn't simply appear with no history and no past, but he came from a people, he has a story, and he has a family. You see, historically, lineage was a big deal. Which is why Matthew's gospel, Luke's gospel, where do they start? They start with the lineage of Jesus. Of saying, hey, where did he come from? And it points all the way back. Just last year, I was spending some time in Mississippi where my grandmother is. And my dad is from there. And we were going through some stuff. And, and my aunt was sharing with me some stories. And I realized I'm not a huge, like, ancestry guy. Like, I've never done the ancestry.com. Never, that's never been a huge question mark for me. But I'm sitting there hearing the stories and going, wait a second. These stories are part of who I am. I can ignore it. I can run from it. I can not value it. But the reality is there are people that I, just a couple generations ago, that I never even knew that had an impact on forming me and who I am today because of the family in which I come from, right? So understanding the history helps us understand the present. And here's what's interesting. You might have noticed that Isaiah chapter 11, verse 1, points to Jesse. Why Jesse? Because just a couple chapters earlier in Isaiah chapter 9, we get another passage that's pretty familiar this time of year. You read these verses and you immediately go, it's definitely Christmas time. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, of the inheritance of his kingdom and of peace there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Now, you read that and you immediately think Christmas. You immediately think Jesus and you go, sign me up, right? There's, there's power, there's, there's, there's might, there's glory. It's, it's good. It's like this is what we expect when the Messiah comes, when God's promised one comes. But how do you go from Isaiah 9 to then Isaiah 11? And Isaiah 11, 1 starts in a very more, much more humble posture. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. Now, there's a big difference between these two passages. In the tone, but also in who is referenced. Did you notice? On the left, in Isaiah 9, it points to the throne of who? David. The throne of David, which is who people expected. The Messiah is going to come. He's going to come from the line of David. 
Who is David? David is the greatest king Israel has ever known. So when we want a Messiah, we think we want to step up from David. That's what we want. When you get to Isaiah 11, the reference here is not to David, but it's to Jesse. Who is Jesse? Jesse is David's dad. Now think about this for a second. Where did Jesse come from? You go to Matthew 1 and you read the lineage. Jesse's grandparents were Ruth and Boaz. Might be familiar with that story. So David's great-grandparents are Ruth and Boaz. We know that story. We certainly know David. How much do you know about Jesse? I guarantee you every bit you know about Jesse is tied to who David is. Right? If you go back to, to 1 Samuel, Saul has been appointed king by God. Saul has drifted from God. So God says, we're going to not start over. We're going to change the story. We're shifting gears here. Saul will not, in his line, will not be king. Instead, the king will be somebody else. And so he sends his prophet Samuel, in 1 Samuel 16, to anoint a new king. So Samuel shows up at Jesse's house, who has eight boys, seven of which come to the, the house, to be, and one of which will be anointed king. They go, you know the story, they go through all seven, and God says, nope, 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 nope. Anybody else? Samuel's going, uh, you, sh- you have another kid? He goes, well, yeah, I got this one that's out. He means David. He's out minding the sheep. David comes in and God says, yep, that's him. So why is it important that we recognize the shoot will come from the stump of Jesse? I think it's a reminder the fact that God uses the unknown to do the unbelievable. Because it's a reminder everybody knew who David became. I'm not sure people oftentimes remembered where David came from. Jesse was a no-name guy in Bethlehem. He obviously had some money. He wasn't poor because he had sheep that David was tending. But we don't know anything about him. He doesn't seem to accomplish anything of that great of significance other than the fact that he was the father of David, which points us to where David came from, which points us to the fact that David came from nothing. He did nothing to become king. God picked him. God said, you will be my king. Now, the contrast between David and between Jesse is huge for us. You see, David represents royalty, power, and prosperity. Three things I would say, yes, yes, and yes. I would love those. Jesse represents anonymity, obedience, and trust. I'll pick David. But here, Isaiah says the shoot will come not from David. It'll come from back up where David came from, which was nothing. So in a scene of desolation, of destruction, where there seems to be no life, life will come. And it's going to look different than you thought it might. It might feel different than you wanted. It might accomplish things differently than you had dreamed, but it's coming You see, David is mentioned 39 times in the Gospels alone. You know how many times David or Jesse's mentioned in the Gospels? Three times. And all three are simply in the lineage. We gotta mention your name because we gotta get to Jesus. (laughs) 
Jesse was a nobody. David was the youngest son of a nobody, insignificant and of little worth until God stepped in. David became a key player in the story that had been written from the very beginning of Scripture, the story that you and I are invited into today. As we move towards Christmas and look at the family story of Jesus, I pray it encourages us as we reflect on our own stories. See, while this shoot of Jesse will start small, it will not be insignificant. And while your story, maybe in the grand scheme of things, sometimes does not feel significant, it is. If God can use Jesse's son David to become King David and to do all of these things, how much more is he at work in and through you and me in our everyday lives? So let's keep going. In Isaiah chapter 11, verse 2, he goes on from the, the first verse and he gives us a picture of what to expect of this shoot that will come up from the stump of Jesse. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. You see, here Isaiah is pointing to the fact that the spirit of the Lord shall rest on him. In those days, it was understood that the Lord's anointed would be, have the spirit of the Lord. We know that because uh, when Saul was king, the spirit of the Lord rested on him. When he drifted from God and turned his back from God, it says the spirit of the Lord left him. When David was anointed, the spirit of the Lord came on him. And it's saying, hey, that's what we would expect from a king. That's what we, that's what we need. We don't just need a king. We need God's king. We need his spirit to, to rest on him. So yes, this is going in the direction in which we would want it to go. And then he lists these six other characteristics. And this, while this, each of the six characteristics are important, they're pointing to something bigger. You see, he says the spirit of wisdom and understanding. He will know what to do. He'll make sense out of the world around him. He will have counsel and might, which means he can give counsel, give direction, and he can have the might to actually carry it out. And he won't just have the spirit of knowledge, but he'll have the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. He'll, he'll know about God, but he'll know enough about God to still fear God. But see, when we put all of these together with the writer, what Isaiah is saying here is he's not saying, hey, look for these seven characteristics and make sure he checks off all seven. What he's saying is this person, this coming king is gonna be different than any other king because he's not just gonna have the spirit of the Lord. He's gonna have these seven characteristics. Why are there seven? Because seven is a picture of completeness. And so what he's saying by listing out these seven is this person is going to have the fullness of God. This person is going to be way beyond David. This person is going to be supernatural because a person will not have the fullness of God. It will be God himself. And he goes on in verse 3. He says, He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. Now, does that sound human? No, it's pointing once again. It's getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And where did this start? Started from a place of destruction. Started from a place of hopelessness. Started with a lifeless stump that actually was not dead, but a story in which God would take the broken pieces and continue to write it and bring redemption and restoration and ultimately bring life. See, as we spend the next four weeks preparing for Christmas, I hope 
that we won't just talk about the roots, but the roots are going to ultimately lead us to hope. And I see the thought about this progression, and maybe it makes sense to you, but as we look at the roots of Jesus' story, and look at the family history of Jesus, what happens? We recognize it's Jesus had a family. Jesus was incredibly human. And part of a family means that there are stories. I'm guessing over Thanksgiving, as you're around a, fam- around a table, inevitably stories came up. About what? About your family. About things that had happened in the past, memories in the past. So roots lead to a family which points to a story. And because there's a story, there's a plan. You ever watched a movie or read a book and you're like, I don't think they really thought through how this was going to end. That's not a good story, Right? When you read a story, when you step into a movie, you're expecting, hey, I'm trusting that you've thought through this, right? And it's going to start somewhere and it's going to end somewhere. And so the fact when we understand the roots and we see how God has been working throughout history leading up to Jesus, it gives us confidence and it gives us hope for today. Because our God is not haphazardly trying to just keep thing, all the balls spinning in air at one time. He is graciously orchestrating and guiding history according to his ultimate plan. That gives us hope in the moments when hope seems lost. You see, digging into the roots of the Christmas story point to a family that Jesus was a part of, which make up a larger story and really God has a plan that has never been stopped. So today, we know that Jesus came. We know that Isaiah chapter 11 came true. Jesus came, but... Isn't that interesting? We find ourselves in a similar position today, don't we? We're still waiting. This time we're waiting for him to come back. But our waiting for him to come back, the hope in his return is bolstered by the fact that he came as promised before. You see, knowing the roots of Jesus reminds us that we're part of the same family tree. You see, the story of Jesus is the story of us. It's a story that we get to participate in today. You see, hope in our world may seem lost at various times. But hope is not lost. Hope has come. I read a story this week about a man who approached a Little League baseball game one afternoon. And he asked a boy in the dugout what the score was. The boy responded, 18 to nothing. We're behind. The spectators said, oh man, I bet you were discouraged. To which the boy responded, why should I be discouraged? We haven't even gotten to bat yet. (laughs) Guys, in the game of life, If somebody walked in on your life that was being played out in front of them, I'm guessing they might think you have reason and I have reason to be discouraged. You and I have reason not to have hope. You have reason to feel like things are hopeless. But guess what? The story's not over. And just like the optimism of this boy saying we haven't even gotten to bat yet, In the face of hopelessness, you and I can say, he hasn't even come back yet. Like our hope is not in something. It's not in a season. It's in someone who has promised to come. Therefore, hope can't be lost. 
Because hope is in Jesus. And especially today, we look around outside of our own lives and just in our culture and we think that culture is pushing the truth of the gospel to the margins and we say, man, it seems like God is losing in every frontier when it comes to our culture. That is not reason for us to lose hope. It is reason for us to stand on hope. It's our reason to look back at the roots of the story and say, if God has been orchestrating this story since the beginning of time, why would he stop now? It is in the spaces where we might be hopeless that hope becomes so important. G.K. Chesterton writes this about hope. He says, hope means hoping when things are hopeless or it is no virtue at all. As long as matters are really hopeful, hope is mere flattery or platitude. It is only when everything is hopeless that hope begins to be a strength. The fact that we start Advent by focusing on hope is a reminder that there are reasons to believe or to think that things are hopeless. Which is why I take such comfort in a passage like Isaiah chapter 11 that says, in a hopeless place where all life seems gone, from that place, God will bring life. See, the promise of the root of Jesse reminds us that God's story marches on unhindered. It reminds us that God uses the unknown to accomplish the unbelievable. It reminds us that God demonstrates his power through weakness. And it reminds us that our hope is anchored in a person, not an idea. God was silent for 400 years before Jesus showed up. How hopeless is that? But it is in that space that hope arrives. If you flip down to Isaiah chapter 11, verse 10, we may find the most hope-filled verse in this passage for us today. In Isaiah 11, verse 10, it says this. In that day, when this root comes, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. You may read that and go, well, well I, I don't see hope in there. You don't even say hope in there. What is, what is hopeful in this? What's hopeful in this is it says, hey, this root of Jesse isn't just coming to rescue the Israelites. He's coming for who? The nations. He's coming for the world, which includes you and me. In the book of Romans, the apostle Paul is writing about this inclusion, our inclusion into God's family, into God's story and the hope that is provided and the hope that is found in Jesus. He writes this, he says, for I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. That's us. As it is written, therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. And again, it is said, rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles. Let all the people extol him. Check this out. And again, Isaiah says, the root of Jesse will come. Even he who arises to rule the Gentiles. In him, the Gentiles will hope. And then lastly, verse 13. May the God of hope, that God, the God who's been writing this story all the way through, the roots, all the way through the roots of Jesus, 
to today. May that God, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. So I want to ask you this morning, I want to give you three pictures. I want to ask you which one represents you today. When you think about your life, do you resonate with a tree going, nothing, nothing can get any better. Life is awesome. Everything is awesome. God is good. I can sing the goodness of God freely and boldly because I believe it and I see it. Or are you on the right? You're going, uh, uh, let's take the opposite of that because all hope seems lost in my world. Or maybe you've been in that spot and now you're on the left and you've got, you're a stump and you've got this little life that's coming and you're going, I think, I think things are changing. I think, I think God is moving. I think something is happening. Which one do you resonate with today? Which story is yours? Because as I thought about this, this line came, just kind of been bouncing around my head and the line was this. What was is not what now is. What was is not what now is. I don't know which picture you resonated with, which picture you associated with, which picture described your life today. But I do know that this applies to every single one of us. Because however bad life was or however good life is, what was is not what now is, right? Maybe life was really good and now it's really hard. Or maybe life is really hard and now it's really good. The reality is things are moving and things are changing. But if that was the end of the story, that would not be very hopeful for any of us. The reality is there's a second line. That is, what is, is not what one day will be. What is, is not what one day will be. So regardless of where you find yourself, regardless of where you've come from, what is today however good or however bad it is today, is not what one day will be because wherever you are today, one day in the future will be better. Why? Because of the hope that is found in Jesus. Which brings us back to the line I put in front of you earlier, the truth that we've seen woven throughout this story when we see here about the roots of Jesus. And their story, the, the theme is this, God doesn't start over when things go bad. He redeems and restores. So wherever you find yourself today, I want you to anchor yourself and go, if this is true again and again and again and again through scripture, why would it not be true for me? And my question would be, how much hope would there be in your life if you believed this was true? Because when Isaiah says, hey, hey, in the midst of destruction and devastation, Life will come. Hope will come. The promise will be fulfilled. The story will continue to be written. The same truth applies to us today. Well, I, I read you the beginning of the story. And I want to read to you the end of the story from the Jesus Storybook Bible. As it talks about Revelation, it talks about John, it talks about how John couldn't put everything he saw into words. And it says, I am the beginning, Jesus said, and the ending. One day, John knew heaven would come down and mend God's broken world and make it our true, perfect home once again. And he knew in some mysterious way that 
would be hard to explain that everything was going to be more wonderful for once having been so sad. And he knew that the ending of the story was going to be so great, it would make all the sadness and the tears and everything seem like just a shadow that is chased away by the morning sun. I'm on my way, said Jesus. I'll be there soon. John came to the end of his book, but he didn't write the end. Because, of course, that's how stories finish. And this one's not over yet. So instead he wrote, come quickly, Jesus, which perhaps is really just another way of saying to be continued. God has been, God is, and he will be writing his story. A story that didn't end in the garden when it very well could have. A story that didn't end with Jesus being born. A story that didn't end with Jesus rising from the dead. A story that hasn't ended today, but a story that will go on and on and on and on through all of eternity as we live, not just with the knowledge of God, not just with the spirit of God inside of us, but in the presence of that God. So when we say Christmas is a season of hope, we point to the story that is not finished that a story that God is continuing to write. And we're reminded that God doesn't start over when things go bad. He simply restores and redeems. So I want to invite myself, I want to invite you to stand on the truth that we read earlier. The truth of Romans 15, 13. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. I don't know where you are this morning. Maybe you are, feel like you're on the outside looking in and you're going, man, the, the roots of Jesus' story, the family that you're talking about, I'm not a part of. That invitation is open. That invitation has been open. Jesus is continuing to invite and welcome anyone who would believe in him to come into that family to be a part of that story. And guess what? As people are added to the story, the story just grows and God celebrates, just like we did with Janelle earlier, of a life that's being transformed. That's what God is after. And that is the hope that he gives. So if you're not a part of that, don't leave today without being a part of this story and carrying this hope with you. For the rest of us, maybe there's a chance as we close our time this morning simply to celebrate with hope the Lord's Supper and communion, recognizing the gift, the sacrifice that he gave when he came to make this hope available to us. Maybe you just wanna sit and reflect and just sing. Well, this morning... Let's remember and let's live in the hope that has been available, made available to all of us. It's in Jesus' name. All right, let me pray. Father, thank you so much for this morning. Thank you for your story. Thank you for the reminder that many, many times, again and again and again, in the midst of utter devastation, destruction, and hopelessness, you have brought life. You have redeemed and you have restored. You've redeemed my life. You've restored my life and you're continuing to do it day after day. God, you want to do that for all of us and you are inviting us to remember that we're a part of a story, a story that you've been writing, a story that is yet unfinished because you have not yet come to get your children. For that, we worship you this morning. We praise you and we recognize that hope can only be found in Christ alone. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.